Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Today I'm talking to Lawrence Alderson, one of the founders of the Rare Breed Survival Trust. The Rare Breed Survival Trust does exactly what its name says it does. It looks out for the survival of rare breeds of livestock, cattle and sheep, horses and pigs, but also goats and all sorts of poultry. And Lawrence Alderson founded the Rare Breed Survival Trust in 1973, and it was the first formal organization in the world dedicated to the conservation of farm breeds. In a way, it was a happy accident. Lawrence Alderson grew up on what he calls an impoverished little hill farm in the northern Pennines. That's the range of hills that runs down the north of England, and it's a beautiful area. And one of the reasons it's so beautiful is the kind of farm that Lawrence Alderson's parents operated. The land is high, with rough grazing that's rich in biodiversity. Livestock, mostly cattle and sheep, have to be tough and hardy to thrive on that kind of fodder, not to mention the cold winters. And selecting the animals that did well created local breeds, and among them were the Swaledell sheep and the Northern Dairy Shorthorn cattle, that the Aldersons raised. Lawrence Alderson left the farm and went to university, where he studied genetics, and he came to realise something about those sheep and cattle breeds. At the time, they were just the breeds we had, along with Swaledale sheep and Teeswater sheep. But afterwards, when I got to university and when I came out of university, then you realise that what you had, uh, in fact, was precious heritage breeds. It's rather like living in a beautiful place like Teesdale, which is where I lived, and, and not appreciating that High Force is the biggest waterfall in England or anything else. It was just there. <laughs> These breeds that you mentioned, they were just part of, they were how you farmed. Absolutely, yes. So then what is it that makes a, a rare breed? I mean, is, is there actually a definition of a rare breed or a heritage breed? Yes, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of the first things that, that we did right way back when uh, when I founded the Rare Breed Survival Trust in England. First things were to define what a rare breed is, how it's an endangered breed, uh, and then to set out the protocols as to how to deal with that problem. And so that was one of the very early tasks. And it was numerical, if it got very low in numbers, obviously. But also, um, we added then uh, things like geographical endemism, where it's concentrated in a very small area and therefore is endangered, even though it might be high in numbers. And then again, genetic erosion. If there's too much loss of the genetics of the founder population because it's concentrated in a few animals, then again, you have another factor which can seriously endanger a breed. The other thing that's intriguing is... Um my my kind of amateur reading of, of animal breeding is that, you know, in the sort of 17th, 18th century, yes, there were people improving their local animals. But how far back can you trace these breeds? <laughs> if you want to go all the way, I, mean, I, I breed white park cattle. And we can trace those back in Britain for 2,000 years, which is more than any other breed can. But we can trace it back further because I did some research with a, a German professor 
Um, and we've traced one of my co-families back to a cow 10,000 years ago in the Middle East. We, she has exactly the same haplotypes that have come down. We can trace the path of that haplotype through southern Turkey, through northern Italy, and right back up to my cow in this country. So, wait a minute. Let's back up a minute. What is a haplotype? Right. A haplotype is, is a very small fraction of the variation that you find in a gene. One of the variations. So, if you find a particular small genetic variation, it's then unique, and you know if you can find it elsewhere, you can trace the relative or that descendants of that particular animal right through. And you found one of your cattle has an ancestor 10,000 years ago. Absolutely. But, but in a sense, I have an ancestor millions of years ago because I'm, you know, we're all connected by descent. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little puzzled about if you saw that that ancestor 10,000 years ago, you wouldn't know it was a white, white part cow, would you? It wouldn't even be white. Exactly. <laughs> In what sense is the white part... I mean, yes, it has an ancestor, but when did it become a white part cow? Absolutely, that's the question. Or every animal in this country or any country it can go back that length of time. It's just that we have demonstrated with a particular genetic material that we can go back that far. It probably didn't become white park until at some stage on its journey, that particular genetic color variation, which is quite a complex, unique one, somehow came in. I suspect it was somewhere in Italy. And, and that from then on, that color became recognizable. And, and when you come to this country, it's fascinating because um, if I look at the White Park breed, there's a, there's a herd up in Scotland and there's a herd in Wales, for example, and they have the same haplotype, even though there's no apparent connection nationally between them. So it, it's quite a carefully monitored relationship. Sticking with the White Park, um, what, what do they look like? I mean, you said, well, obviously, they're white. But, I mean, what distinguishes them from, I don't know, a white cow here, Marema or something? Well, how, what do they look like? Right, well, they're, they're porcelain white and not grey white for a start. They have black points, usually, sometimes red points, but black points. In other words, a black nose, black muzzle, black ears, black eyes, beautiful mascara. Uh, not uh, just the rims, um, then uh, black feet, um, and black teats in the cows, but the tail is totally white all the way. And that distinguishes them from, you mentioned the Marema. The Marema has got a black tail. But, but that's just appearance. Of course, their real value is in their ability to convert low-quality herbage into high-quality meat, and you must not forget that in 1617, King James I so enjoyed a loin of white park beef after he'd been hunting that he knighted it. He dubbed it sirloin. That's always seemed to me to be one of those slightly fanciful stories about the origins of food. It's, it's true and documented. 
the, the folly of misbelief, Jeremy. <laughs> yes, it is recorded. It's recorded not just in, in my books that I've written, but it is recorded in other books further back as well, yes. And it was a specifically, it was a white, a white park breed that gave... Yes, it was specifically because it was in a herd uh, uh, on a place at, called Horton Towers, which is now near Preston in Lancashire, and that's exactly where it took place. As, as far as you're concerned, is, is that the fine eating quality? And you mentioned the ability to convert rough grassland into fine eating quality. Is that the primary reason to conserve rare breeds? Well, no, the, the, the primary reason for me is because it's a heritage breed. It is part of British heritage. In, in, at the beginning of the Second World War, Winston Churchill thought it was such an important part of British heritage that he sent some White Park cattle to Canada to save them in case we were invaded. Really? So the heritage factor is hugely important. But, but no, it, coming, looking into the future, um, and for example, I believe that we are planting trees all over the place, which we shouldn't be. We should be conserving upland grazing um, because that's good for biodiversity, good for um, stopping land degradation and all other sorts of things. But that's where White Park cattle are at their best. They're converting that rough herbage into high-quality meat. And the quality meat is, is based on things like flavour, marbling, and all those other things. So it's, it's, a, it's got a very wide range of importance as a breed. But there are lots and lots of other breeds, and I know you're concerned with almost all of them. So can you generalize about what is the threat to these rare and heritage breeds? First of all, in global warming, we have this concept that uh, we've, we've got to plant trees everywhere, which, which I fundamentally don't object to planting trees, but I think we have to recognize the limitations, and especially if it's planted over grassland where these breeds uh, graze, where to which they're best adapted, that is a danger. There's still the danger that the commercial side of, of livestock farming seems to consider that if something's local and rare, it's not functional, it's not commercial. And that, I think, we'll find is, is, is wrong because intensive breeds, of course, require intensive inputs. And the further we go down the line, the more we've got to feed people and grow crops to feed people direct, the more um, the grassland will be found in the uplands, not in the rich cultivated land. And so again, we need these breeds, which currently are being pushed out by the popular commercial breeds, by Friesian, Holstein Friesian dairy cattle, by Charolais beef cattle, etc. Just to, to think about these, these the, the intensive breeds... Certainly, we have seen Holstein Frisians, black and white cows, covering the planet almost. Um, and the argument is always, well, they're more efficient. Uh, uh, they are more intensive in their particular environment. And that is exactly, as you say, if we can fill them full of high energy feed, they will make high production, high lactation yield. But the problem is, that the more the human population grows, the more of the land is needed to feed direct to humans, not to go through an animal. And so the, the areas of land 
best suited to those intensive breeds will disappear and livestock farming will move much more to the um, non-cultivatable areas. And in that sense, they're inefficient. And that's quite apart from the fact that they're more prone to disease, the fact that they only live for one and a half lactations instead of the old thing of, of living for 10 lactations. So efficiency has got to be related to what the resources are, and those resources are going to change. One of the things I've read is about these intensive breeds is that very often um, they're actually not very genetically distinct because one bull sires with artificial insemination sires so many progeny that at least as far as his genetics are concerned there's almost no variation among all the cattle around is is that really a problem do you think uh, it's certainly a, an acute danger in the holstein we've just been talking about holstein in the holstein there are only two male lines left alive if you trace directly down the male line there are only two lines and quite recently one of those lines was found to transmit a defect which caused abortion in the cows. So that is what I call genetic danger. And that's in a breed that's found all over the world. Aren't the Holstein breeders aware of this? I mean, if, if, if one of the two bulls whose lines is, is represented causes an ab abortion in cattle, I mean, aren't, they, aren't they trying to get rid of that or deal with it? Oh, yes. Or? Yes, absolutely. And, and with a huge population like the Holstein, you can probably uh, do testing to do it. You can identify the gene and then you can test the females uh, or the males to see if they carry the gene and try and, and, and go round, circumvent the problem. But th that doesn't alter the fact that, that your genetics are suffering while you eliminate all, the, all these things. And uh, I mean, I'm not talking about peanuts here. Th this particular bull that I'm talking about, I think, had three million uh, progeny uh, uh, in the first two generations. And in the research, they found half a million female descendants that had ab aborted. So it's, it's a big problem. Right. And that would apply to anything which has a single factor uh, objective. If, if you're just selecting for lactation yield then it's a single factor and once you do that you're taking the whole breed down a very narrow channel the alternative which is what you were doing when on the farm when you when you grew up which is northern shorthorn dairy cattle are they dual purpose do you get beef yes. as well so yeah. So you're getting, they're basically, they're generalists and able to do well, more or less, whatever you do with them, so long as you look after them. Yes. The Northern Dairy Shorthorn is actually a very good example of what you're saying, because they, they don't yield as much as the Holstein by any manner of means, but they do it on a very much lower input system. A, a, a poor old Pennine farm is, is not going to produce the lush grass that, that a Holstein would need, or, or indeed the concentrate feed, which is poured in after it. They thrive on this hill herbage, if I can put it that way. And they also are dual purpose. Yes, you get a good beef carcass when you've finished. 
And I think one of the really interesting things just at present is that there are up in the Pennines a couple of people that I know of who have deliberately started new herds of northern dairy shorthorns, keeping them in the way that we used to keep them when I was a boy, which is a long time ago now, um, and, and they're using their adaptation to the Pennine environment, to the, to the low input systems, and then they're producing speciality product like cheese, for example, as we used to back then. And I can see that returning much more. And it's just a matter of keeping these endangered breeds alive, enabling them to survive until enough people realize, including governmental bodies realize, that we are going in that direction and that they, they are going to be very necessary. Talking about governmental bodies, does the fact that the UK is now out of the European Union, does that offer opportunities for a different direction for agricultural subsidies? Yes, absolutely. Um, and certainly the statements that have been made, if we believe them, uh, would point us in a, in a definitely a different direction. First of all, they would divert subsidies um, by capping them so that huge sums wouldn't go just for owning a lot of land. It would go to owners uh, or farmers who keep their animals and keep their land in a way that is beneficial. And beneficial is can be interpreted in many ways. For me, it's sustainability and efficiency. And so I think that that will help. And we've also, in the latest agriculture bill, there was uh, interesting phrases regarding genetic resources and other, other words that we in the rare breeds world understand, which gave me encouragement that, in fact, government is moving in, in the right direction. And I know that the current Secretary of State for the Environment understands very acutely the importance and need for locally adapted breeds because he, is, he has been involved with his family in that sort of area. That's interesting that it, this could be something good to come out of Brexit. Yes, if, it, if, it's, if it's played the right way, it, it, there is the opportunity. I would stress that the maintenance and better use of non-cultivatable grassland is part of the uh, answer to the whole thing. It's part of the solution. If it's just planted with trees, as several people are advocating at present, we've lost that opportunity. We've talked a lot about the UK, about the Pennines and, and, and England, really. How much of a global problem is this? It is, it is a hugely important thing. And if you think that in many parts of Africa, if we look at that, um, animals from our developed Western world, as we call it, have been donated to Africa, and I tend to use the word dumped, not donated, have been dumped on Africa and what on the basis that they have a higher yield, which is what we've just been talking about. So the farmers in Africa accept these gifts, um, if that's what they are, 
they replace the native stock. The native stock goes, the imported exotic animals are not suited to the environment. They last a very short period of time. By the time it's been realized, and they, are, they don't function efficiently, and probably don't even live, it's too late because the native ones have been replaced and gone. And, and that is, um, again, it's a, it's a part political problem, but it's something that happens. And uh, like a lot of things, unless we realize these truths quickly enough, it, it may be too late. When you say donated or dumped, do you mean by development agencies um, big time, or do you mean the little kind of charitable donator, heifer, send a goat, whatever it might be? I'm confused about that because I've, I've always imagined that you're not actually sending a heifer to Africa. Um, you're enabling an African to, to obtain a heifer. But is that heifer a Holstein Friesian? I mean, is it, is it that kind of replacement? I, 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 I like you, um, I'm perfectly, and, and in fact do send donations for people in Africa and elsewhere to keep livestock efficiently. And, and that's livestock that they have. What I'm referring to otherwise are where um, in an apparently philanthropic spirit, um, which may be a cover for other negotiations that take place, you never know, but in that spirit, animals which are genetically redundant in the Western world are, are donated to countries on the pretext that they're high yielding. Yeah. We don't want them, so we might as well give them there and, and, and make ourselves feel good and appear good. Yep. Yep. Am I a cynic? Mm, I, I, if you are, then I am too. Um, <laughs> there is a fundamental question you've raised throughout our talk. You've raised the question of more food for more people, which will be necessary. But the countervailing argument is always that food must be cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. I've eaten Dexter beef and I've had cheese from little little flocks up in Swaledale and where have you. And it's always expensive. I mean, it's expensive in cash terms to me. How do you overcome the argument that this is a rich person's hobby, if you like, um, eating them, uh, preserving them to eat them, preserving them to eat their products? It's, it's a folly, really. That argument is only one that one can discuss in um, in, a, in a, a Western context. And there, it, it's, yes, people do want cheap food, but if, if you carry on at present um, growing crops for animals on the good land in order to produce this cheap food, as it's called, then people will run out of food anyway. If we have 10 billion people in the world by 2050, you're going to need an awful lot more of the cultivated land simply to grow the, the corn, the wheat, to feed those people without it going through, through animals. You need it for the people. And so at that point, cheap food has got to be looked at in the context of food availability. And so if, if animals move to lower input systems, they may produce less, 
uh, and it, it may even be more expensive food. But from a livestock point of view, I think we accept anyway that people will eat less meat um, in the Western world I'm talking about, but it will be better quality meat. It will be coming from this, uh, these upland grazings, which are healthy, good for biodiversity, um, and people will treat it much more as something that they eat as a, as a, a special occasion rather than just routine. So, you know, I think you have to look at a whole load of factors here which come together and, and, and producing enough food at some stage is going to be uh, as much importance as cheap food. Lawrence Alderson, founder of the Rare Breeds Survival Trust. I'm certainly persuaded by the points he made that we'll need good land for human food. And that's why we need rare and heritage breeds to take advantage of land that's not so good. And as Lawrence Alderson pointed out, those upland areas are much better for global climates as rough grazing rather than planted to trees. Grazing land is a great carbon sink. I'll put links to some of the science that supports that idea as well as to Lawrence Alderson's latest book in the show notes. You can find them, as ever, at eatthispodcast.com, along with the archives, where there are also a few other episodes about livestock. My sincere thanks to the supporters who help to keep the lights on, and especially to make transcripts available to anyone who needs one. There'll be a transcript for this episode in a day or two. I'll mention when it's up on Twitter, where I'm at eatpodcast. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can tweet me at eatpodcast or drop me an email to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. That's all for now, though. So until the next time, from me, Jeremy Jerpus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.